You didn't know? It's me, it's me, it's that D-O-double-G, the road dog, Jesse James. And you're listening on the SNS Radio Network. And if you ain't down with that, I got two words for you. Suck it. Hey, this is Badass Billy Gunn. My name is Armando Alejandro Estrada. <laughs> hey, it's Road Animal. <laughs> Yo, monkeys, it's me, DPP, the king of Bada Bing, the master of the diamond cutter, the three-time, three-time, three-time world champion. And you, well, you, monkey, stay tuned or you will feel bang. I am the genius of the glory and renown, Lanny Poppins. Well, what's up, all you stars and stars? This is Mariette. This is Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michael, Mr. Hall of Fame, 2011. On SNS Radio Network. See ya! And I wouldn't want to be ya. The world is listening. I am a real American. Fight for what's right. Fight for your life. When it comes crashing down and it hurts inside. If you hurt my friends, then you hurt my pride. I gotta take a stand, no, I can't let it slide. I am a real Welcome fans to the Hulkamania Chronicles on Beyond the Bell via the SNS Radio Network. Your host, ring announcer Sean Beckerman, is proud to present you the story of arguably the greatest superstar ever in the history of professional wrestling and sports entertainment. We introduce our Chronicle series, and what a way to kick off our Chronicle series as we look back at the most influential superstars in the world of sports entertainment with quite possibly the greatest and most popular superstar of all time, and that is the immortal Hulk Hogan. Welcome, fans, to the Hulkamania Chronicles as we look back on the story and career of the immortal Hulk Hogan. Beyond the Bell is your home for all things pro wrestling nostalgia, where we rewind and relive the greatest and worst in the world of sports entertainment. So we're going to start off the Hulkamania Chronicles with the early days of Hulkamania. One of the greatest, 
most popular, most hated, and charismatic wrestlers of all time, Hulk Hogan is one of the men who helped parlay the circus-like world of professional wrestling from a cult following into the forefront of American entertainment and made it a standard in American culture. Still, the most influential man in professional wrestling today, and possibly its history. He is an icon of historical proportions, taking the game to another level of television, pay-per-view, and media recognition. Terry Bollea did not attempt to wrestle as Danny Hodge with a scientific approach, but also did not portray himself to be the type of wrestler. Bollea presented a street fighter, a brawler to the ring, able to match wits in certain matches, but in others willing to punch, kick, and even eye-gouge his way to victory. Jesse Ventura would say it often when calling Hogan's matches. He would point out Hogan's tactics and wonder why fans overlooked his sometimes heel moves. Hogan was bigger than any other fan favorite could be. If he clawed his way to the top with punches and chokes, the fans cheered. There was no way he could ever be wrong or ever do any wrong to the fans. It wasn't until 1996 that Hogan attempted to change the face of professional wrestling and go against the fans. Even while doing that, he remained true to form. Fans loved to hate him, and when it was time to ask for forgiveness, he did. The fans rushed back to his side. In the world of professional sports, there are those select few athletes whose names are capable of drawing universal respect, admiration, and awe. You have your legends, your all-time greats, but even though they do not reach the level of absolute elite, they still are admired as icons. The level of icon, champions, whose accomplishments and contributions to their respective fields left an indelible mark on the sporting world. Baseball has the Sultans of SWAT, Babe Ruth. Basketball has the celebrated Michael Jordan. Michael Air Jordan, should I say. The first and last name in boxing will always be Muhammad Ali. A big man, Hogan stood six foot seven and weighed over 300 pounds at the height of his career. A 24-inch python, the Hulk Hogan many saw was as honest as could be. Parents loved him. He was a role model for all who watched. Anyone who would bash Hogan would not totally understand what he had accomplished, basically driving the WWF from its hidden Northeast regional quadrant into a world spotlight. Of course, he had had Vince McMahon behind him. Together, they pulled money from the pockets of fans who wouldn't have been there if Hogan hadn't arrived when he did. A new brand of American entertainment was born. He weighed 10-7 when he was born. I say a star was born that day. And uh, we were awfully proud of him, even from a little fella. Terry was the youngest of three brothers. Shortly after his birth, the family moved from Georgia to Florida. From the time he started school, he literally stood out. Kids in first grade made me quite aware that I had a very large head, and that pretty much stuck with me um, throughout my whole uh, childhood through adolescence. That I had this large head on my shoulders, and uh, for some reason it was bigger than everybody else's. Terry's hometown of Tampa was a thriving center for wrestling, and the six-year-old became fascinated with it. I just drove my father crazy to take me to the matches. And when he took me down to the armory the first night in Tampa, that was it. I was hooked. I was a wrestling junkie, and I dreamed about it 24 hours a day. He certainly had the right build for the sport. By the time he was a teenager, 
he was already as big as some of the wrestlers. In high school, you know, he's 6'5", 250 pounds, 230, 40 pounds plus that, so it's a big high school, big high school guy, you know, and uh, must have weighed all of 155 soaking wet, you know. <laughs> Terry learned his wrestling moves by watching the pros and practiced them on the other boys in the playground whenever he could. But he went too far when he tested his skills on the gym coach. He made me get down in the referee's position on all fours and uh, he went ahead and hooked me and when he said go I sat out real quick chicken wing his arm and I pinned him. He came up out of his mind crazy and I mean I just remember running for my life around the lockers in the, in the shower area running from him to stay away from him. Terry also had interests other than sport. He was a top student and one of his greatest loves was music. Teaching himself to play the guitar and bass guitar, he formed a popular rock band that played at local dances. He'd come home and for breakfast he'd have maybe 10, 11 eggs and he'd have about three quarter pound of ground sirloin and a whole quart of orange juice. That was his breakfast. At school, Terry was known as reserved, even shy. But once in front of an audience with his band, he came alive. When he played in the band, he was amongst four or five guys playing, but he's some, you know, the people, they, their, their voice got excited about him. He was a big, so big and playing that guitar and long blonde hair. And it's like, he always just created a lot of excitement. In the sport of professional wrestling, where men and women would put their bodies on the line every night to entertain their audience, one name stood above all others throughout its 130-year-old history. And it's, and it's growing ever since. More than any other performer, he was responsible for the incredible growth in popularity the sport experienced over the past three decades, before mixed martial arts became the world's most popular combat sport. He is the most famous professional wrestler of all time, and the most phenomenal drawing card in the history of the business. This man is the immortal icon of professional wrestling, Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan was born Terry Jean Balea on August 11, 1953, at St. Joseph's Hospital in Augusta, Georgia. The third child of Italian-American couple Ruth and Peter Balea, he had an older brother, Alan, as well as an older half-brother from Ruth's first marriage, Kenneth Wheeler. From the start, Terry was larger than life, weighing 10 pounds, 7 ounces at birth. Peter Balea, who nicknamed young Terry Big Train, worked as a pipe fitter in Panama. Ruth Balea excelled in music and professional dancing, and also worked for the Navy as a secretary. Nine months after Terry's birth, the Balea family moved to Tampa, Florida, the Sunshine State, where it would be Terry would receive his schooling, attending Blast Point Elementary, James Monroe Junior High School, and Robinson High School. At a young age, Terry learned to play guitar, which he would help, down, help him down the road as he pursued his dreams of rock stardom. Young Terry was also a standout in Little League Baseball. In one instance, Terry was chosen to participate in a series of all-star games. He pitched in the final game of the series, which saw his team win with a 4-3 score. In the series, Terry registered 10 hits and 14 times at bat, tallying a .714 batting average. A .714 batting average. Tremendous. Ultimately, baseball would prove not to be Terry's calling. 
An arm injury he suffered during practice killed his dreams of playing professionally in 1967 at age 14. Later that year, Terry started working out regularly at Hector's gym in Tampa after years of battling weight issues. It was, it was here where Terry Belea started building the physique which would earn him international superstardom. Terry studied business administration at Hillsborough Community College as well as majoring in business administration and music at the University of South Florida. He also picked up a bass guitar and played in several Florida-based rock bands, including Infinity's End, Coco, and Ruckus. Terry would spend the next 10 years of his life as a rock and roll artist. He even found work as a studio musician for Atlanta-based Century Artists, working as a ghost player on recordings for Todd Rundgren, Iron Butterfly, and Blues Image, among others. In his spare time, Terry would attend wrestling matches with his father at the Fort Hammer Hesterly Armory in Tampa. Easy for me to say. Father and son also attended matches at the Tampa Sportatorium, where Championship Wrestling from Florida, CWF, a highly regarded promotion run by the late, great Eddie Graham, held their television tapings, which you can see on Classics on Demand right now. Towering over the other spectators in the crowd, Terry, a long-life wrestling fan, passionately cheered on his favorites to victory. These favorites included the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, superstar Billy Graham, the man who would later become his greatest influence in the ring. The massive youngster was so huge and so vocal that competitors inside the squared circle sometimes paused to take note of his actions. Terry loved watching professional wrestling, but he never really considered it as a career option at the time. Ironically, it would be his aspiring music career which would lead Terry to his true calling. Many professional wrestlers who competed in Florida, in Florida in that territory at the time visit the bars where Terry's band Ruckus would be performing. These were the very men that Terry enjoyed watching compete on television at the local armory. One night after a performance, Terry approached legendary wrestling brothers Jack and Jerry Terry's Briscoe at, at the physique. bar. And stature caught their attention and the Briscoe spoke to him about giving wrestling a try. The idea of stepping into the ring and becoming a superstar of professional wrestling was too good for Terry to pass up. He soon sold out all of his musical sold all of his musical equipment and left college to pursue a full-time wrestling career. This decision would not please his father Peter. Although a wrestling fan himself, Peter disapproved of his son leaving behind a college education for a career in the ring. Understandable. Eddie Graham's son, Mike, one of Florida's most popular wrestling stars, was a senior in Robinson, in Robinson High School the same year Terry was a sophomore. As fate would have it, Mike Graham would be the man in, who introduced Terry to his trainer, Hiro Matsuda. Hailing from Yokohama, Japan, Matsuda was a feared and respected, respected athlete who had held the NWA Southern Heavyweight Championship, as well as many other titles. Within the first 30 seconds of, the, of his first training session, Matsua, Matsuda broke Terry's ankle and proceeded to humiliate him in front of his class, kicking him while he was down and spinning on him. Matsuda then told Terry if he had the guts to return, he would be his teacher. Ten weeks later, Terry returned at Matsuda's training camp, determined to push himself to his physical limits in order to become a professional wrestler. After nearly two years of training, Terry Balea was ready to step into the ring for the first time, competing in championship wrestling from Florida. The Hulkster wrestled his first professional match on August 9, 1977, in Fort Pierce, Florida. Shortly after his debut, Terry donned a mask and competed for several months as the Super Destroyer, a hooded persona first used by Don Jardine, a.k.a. the Spoiler, and subsequently used by several other wrestlers over the years. 
According to legend, Terry was so green in his earliest matches, he had had trouble performing such basic maneuvers as running the ropes. I think we see that now with the likes of certain divas. It had been said Terry would often find himself entangled in them or falling through them to the crowd's amusement. After competing for a few months, Terry found himself and felt wrestling was not the way he wanted to earn a living. Citing small payoffs and not having enough of a chance to wrestle on big cards, he thought he found his way and that wasn't wrestling. Terry decided to quit the sport and go to work on the loading docks of Port Tampa as a longshoreman. He thought he found his way and that wasn't professional wrestling. Within a matter of weeks, Terry was contacted by the Briscoe brothers and former NWA world champion Terry Funk, all of whom all of whom felt that Terry had potential to become a high-profile wrestling attraction. Eventually, Terry decided to give the sport another try. Maybe this was his calling. Maybe he really didn't find the true Terry Balea. He didn't find his true self. In 1978, Terry competed for NWA Southeastern Championship Wrestling, where Terry, the Hulk Boulder, became his new ring moniker. Terry earned the nickname The Hulk after appearing on a regional television talk show in the Alabama area in 1978 to promote a local wrestling card. The other guest host, or the other guest on the show, was Lou Ferrigno, a former Mr. Universe who was starring in the hit CBS drama series based on the Marvel Comics superhero The Incredible Hulk. The show's host looked in awe at Boulder and proclaimed to the viewing audience that he looked bigger than Ferrigno. Terry responded by telling the host, that's because I'm the real Hulk. And not long thereafter, the Hulk name became forever attached to Terry amongst promoters, fans, and fellow wrestlers. In those formative years, Terry feuded with the ring legends such as Ox Baker, Austin Idol, and a man who he'd see a lot more of later in his career, the 7'4", 520-pound Andre the Giant. Terry would eventually go on to win his first wrestling championship, the NWA Southeastern Heavyweight Championship, the Southern Division. Terry even had an early shot at the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in May 1979 facing NWA Kingpin Harley Race. Terry also competed for Jarrett Welsh Wrestling in Memphis in the Tennessee area during this period of his career. Another early ring persona for Terry was the cocky Sterling Golden, I love that name, a name which was bestowed upon him by Georgia Championship Wrestling promoter Jim Barnett. Barnett took a look at the muscular bronze giant and saw a bigger, stronger, meaner version of professional wrestling hall of famer Gorgeous George. Using the nickname the Wrestling Hulk, Sterling Golden offered up to $10,000 to any wrestler who could break his submission finisher, the Golden Squeeze Bear Hug. He also captured the NWA Southeastern Heavyweight Championship Northern Division, holding it for 25 days. During his run as Sterling Golden, Terry was contacted by Vince McMahon, Vincent J. McMahon, I should say, a legendary promoter for the Northeastern United States who ran the Capital Wrestling Corporation, the parent company of then-relevant World Wrestling Federation, or WWWF, Worldwide Wrestling Federation. After meeting with McMahon in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Terry agreed to come work for the Worldwide Wrestling Federation under yet a new name, the Fabulous Hulk Hogan. At the time, the Federation had many heroes who had represented different ethnic populations. McMahon was of Irish descent and wanted to create a persona to which Terry would turn on him, turn him into a roughneck Irish brawler. McMahon even instructed Terry to dye his hair red, 
Eventually, the idea behind the making by making Terry an Irishman was dropped, but the name Hulk Hogan remained. His nickname, The Fabulous, was also quickly changed to The Incredible, borrowing directly from the Marvel Comics namesake, which became an issue in the latter part of his career, which we'll get into. I started wrestling for a couple of years and couldn't make any money and quit three or four times. Different territories of Pensacola, Alabama, Memphis, where Jerry Lawler was at running the show. Well, there's just a little bit bigger dog that's after you, brother, and that's me. And this Monday night in Memphis, Daddy, when I get a hold of you, Mr. Bass, I'm going to take you and bury your head right in the map, brother. Making no money. Finally, I quit. Went back to work on the docks as a longshoreman, loading ships. And uh, Jack and Jerry Bristol called me and said, Are you crazy, man? You could have the greatest career ever in wrestling. I want you to meet a guy named Vince McMahon. I said, No, I'm not interested. My brother, Jack, had always told Terry, Terry, your place is New York, because New York at that time featured these gigantic guys. Vince McMahon Sr., just that's basically all he would use was these big monsters. So my brother walks over the phone, picks up the phone, calls Vince McMahon Sr., and uh, the rest is basically history. I went up there and met Vince Sr., and he got along top of me, and told me what he wanted to do with me, and after a short conversation in Allentown, Pennsylvania, I agreed. And that's how I came to New York, is uh, Jack and Jerry Briscoe talking into giving it one more try. There's Fred Lassie and Hulk Hogan. He's a big monster, this Hulk Hogan is. Massive 320-pounder. Hogan really put together. Well, when I first came to New York in 78 to 80, I was the bad guy. Fred Blass, who's my manager. The fabulous Hulk Hogan, victorious in his very first appearance here in Madison Square Garden, who unquestionably showed tonight this capacity crowd. He's one of the great competitors, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, I was his first manager. I told him what I expected him to do, to walk in the ring, you know, and just kind of semi-glare at the people. I would do all the rest, you know, antagonize them and everything. On November 13, 1979, the incredible Hulk Hogan made his debut in the World Wrestling Federation, where his wrestling idol superstar Billy Graham achieved his greatest notoriety. In his debut, Hogan wrestled three matches in Allentown, Pennsylvania during one of the Federation's marathon television tapings. Hogan was victorious in all three bouts, squashing Harry Valdez in the first match, Paul Figueroa in the second, and Ben Ortiz in the third. One month later, on December 17th, Hogan made his Madison Square Garden wrestling debut, defeating Ted DiBiase in 11 minutes, 12 seconds. Hogan started out in the Federation as an arrogant heel, clad in a golden cape and managed by the late, classy Freddie Blassie. During his first run with the Federation, Hogan feuded intensely with World Wrestling Federation champion Bob Backlund, Mr. USA Tony Atlas, and Andre the Giant. Hogan and Andre would go on to clash in a, in a historic match on August 9, 1980 in front of 32,295 fans at Shea Stadium in Flushing, New York. Let's go Mets. This was part of the Federation showdown at Shea event. Hogan's first World Wrestling Federation run ended in the spring of 81 after he received an offer from actor Sylvester Stallone to be a part of his next film venture, Rocky III. McMahon had already booked Hogan for a series of matches in the Carolinas under the auspices of promoter Jim Crockett Jr., and also felt Hogan was a wrestler, not an actor. Despite being warned he'd never work again 
for the World Wrestling Federation if he chose to be in the film, Hogan went ahead and accepted Stallone's offer. After filming a scene for Rocky III, Hogan made a brief return to Championship Wrestling from Florida, where he engaged in a series of matches with the powerful Mighty Igor. A short time later, Hogan made his debut in the Minnesota-based American Wrestling Association, promoted by former nine-time AWA World Champion and two-time NCAA Champion Vern Gagne. Hogan's debut for the organization took place in the grandiose fashion, to say the least. On a special AWA edition of the Phil Donahue Show, shortly thereafter, on August 1st, 1981, his first AWA match took place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he defeated Tony Leone and Chuck Greenlee in a handicap match. Hogan started his AWA run portraying his heel character from the World Wrestling Federation, this time under the, manage- under the management of luscious Johnny Valiant. Despite his status as a rule-breaker, AWA fans reacted much differently to Hogan. The audience couldn't get enough of the muscular Hogan, and soon AWA bookers were compelled to turn Hogan face at that point. Rocky III premiered in theaters nationwide on May 28, 1982. Hogan's role in Rocky III was Thunderlips, a buffed, egotistical wrestler who took on Stallone's Rocky Balboa in a wrestler versus boxer charity match. The role would garner international media attention for Hogan, and soon he was riding the wave of a crest of popularity, the likes of which he had rarely been seen before for a profession for any professional wrestler. The seeds for what would become the cultural movement known as Hulkamania were planted. Rocky III also helped Hogan meet the woman who would later become his wife. After seeing the film, with her mother at a drive-in, a young lady from Los Angeles named Linda Claridge had a chance to meet with Hogan inside the Red Onion restaurant in Southern California. The strikingly beautiful blonde, who worked for a nail salon at the time, caught Hogan's eye almost immediately. As appealing as she was to Hogan's eye, her down-to-earth, soft-spoken demeanor also attracted, attracted her to him. Eventually, the two had developed a strong relationship and were married on December 18, 1983. Terry and Linda Bollea would go on to start a family of their own, bringing two children into the world, daughter Brooke and son Nick. At this point of his life, Hulk Hogan was enjoying enormous fan support in the AWA, but the adulation of the Hulkster didn't stop there. Hogan was also immensely popular with the fans in the island country of Japan. This is where professional wrestling was highly respected. There, Hogan competed for New Japan Pro Wrestling, one of the world's most influential wrestling promotions of all time, run by professional wrestling icon Antonio Inoki. Hogan first appeared in Japan on May 13, 1980, while he was still with the World Wrestling Federation. He would tour the country from time to time over the next few years, facing a wide variety of opponents ranging from Tatsumi Fujinami to Abdullah the Butcher to the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. When competing in Japan, Hogan used a, a vastly different repertoire of wrestling moves, relying on more scientific, traditional wrestling holds and maneuvers as opposed to the power-based brawling style U.S. fans were accustomed to seeing from him. Japanese wrestling fans were in awe of the gargantuan blonde American and nicknamed him Ichiban, which also translates into number one. The Hulkster's fame grew to such large proportions in Japan, he even recorded a four-song extended release where, for, for the Warner Brothers records with the band Pink Cloud. 
On June 2nd, 1983, Hogan became the first International Wrestling Grand Prix tournament winner, defeating Antonio Inoki in the finals of a 10-man tournament featuring top talent from throughout the world. In what would become the most memorable moment in professional wrestling history, especially in Japan, Hogan rendered the seemingly infallible Inoki unconscious on the floor of the Sumo Hall with his Axe Bomber clothesline and was declared the tournament winner by knockout. Hogan and Inoki also worked as partners in Japan, winning the prestigious MSG Tag League Tournament two years in a row in 82 and 83. Over the years, Hogan would continue to make stops in the Far East. His matches with Stan, the Lariat Hansen, and the Great Muta are legendary amongst Japanese wrestling fans. When news hit America, his stock rose another 100 points. He continued to appear in the AWA territory. In the fall of 83, Hogan teamed with Andre the Giant and Dino Bravo to defeat the masked superstar Blackjack Mulligan and Kim Patera in Montreal. He was made an offer to return to the WWF by Vince McMahon Jr., the son of the man who fired him years earlier. Hogan did not immediately accept and fulfilled his obligations for Ganya in the AWA. In December of 83, he married his girlfriend Linda with Andre the Giant and Antonio Inoki looking on. Both his career and personal life were going well. In the short weeks that followed, Hogan departed the AWA after it was said that he was scheduled to win the AWA world title and travel to the Northeast. Over in the United States, Hulk Hogan had been growing increasingly frustrated with the AWA's locker room politics. Twice, Hogan had won the AWA title from Nick Bockwinkle, only to have the decision voided both times, leading to near rioting amongst the audience. This was overturned by the AWA board in April, 80, oh, of April of 2005, thus making Hulk Hogan an officially recognized two-time former AWA world champion. Hogan was also upset with promoter Verangania's demands for a percentage of his Japanese earnings in exchange for the AWA championship. The final straw for Hogan came after Ganya basically refused to pay residuals to him for the sale of a Hulk Hogan t-shirt, which happened to be the exact facsimiles of what Hogan himself had been marketing and selling. You kind of have to wonder what would have happened if Vern Ganya put the rocket onto Hulk Hogan and gave him the push that he saw in the next stage of his career. Would the AWA be thriving and not the WWF? That could be definitely added to our what-if topic. Meanwhile, in the Northeast, Vincent K. McMahon had purchased the World Wrestling Federation from his father and was determined to reinvent the organization under a fresh new direction. At the end of 83, McMahon brought the Hulkster back to the World Wrestling Federation, where he would become the public face of the company for the next decade. Hogan made his return to the Federation at a December 27th taping of Wrestling at the Chase soundly thrashing Bill Dixon. A few days afterward, on January 3rd of 84, Hogan would emerge again, this time performing a hero heroic act which made one thing clear to World Wrestling Federation fans. The brash, villainous Hulk Hogan they once despised was long gone. In his place stood a towering, red and yellow superhero primed to take down the bad guys and revolutionize professional wrestling along the way. During a marathon TV taping in Allentown, Pennsylvania's Agricultural Hall, Bob Backlund was in the midst of a match against Samula, which was Wild Samoan number three, when Backlund realized he would never be able to have a fair match with the Wild Samoans, Afin Sika, lurking at ringside, as well as manager Captain Lou Albano, he rushed to the dressing room to retrieve the man enlisted to thwart the Samoans' imminent interference. Hulk Hogan emerged from the locker room at Backlund's side to the thunderous cheers of the fans. 
When the Samoans ambushed Backlund in the heat of the battle, Hogan leaped into the ring with cat-like quickness, saving Backlund from a three-on-one assault. The fans responded approvingly as you heard the cheers of Hogan erupt within the agricultural hall. It became clear that a new era in wrestling history was just around the corner, one that would bring the industry to heights never before imagined. All of a sudden, I got a call from Vince McMahon, and I thought, you know, my gosh, there's not much to talk about, but we talked. I told my wife, I said, you know, I got a call from Vince McMahon. I never thought I'd work there again. Oh, hello! Back in New York, things were changing. Bob Backlund, the champion, was defeated by the Iron Sheik, a wrestler from Iran who was managed by none other than classy Freddie Blassie. I have to say, God bless to my manager Ayatollah Blassie and Ayatollah Khomeini. Assalamu alaikum, Khoda Hafiz. But shortly after the Sheik's victory, when Backlund brought Hulk Hogan to the ring to help even the odds against the Samoans, the fans approved. Hogan cleared the ring, their approval of his actions was a clear indication that his years of struggle in the industry might have finally paid off. Beyond description, Hogan is cleaning up! A Hogan to Albano! Look at this! Look out! Everybody knows the Hulk. He's changed his ways. He's a great man. He's told me. He's not going to have Blasty around. I'm going to give him my hand and give him good luck. All right, Bob, you know something? I would like to thank Mr. Bob Backlund and the WWF for bringing the Hulkster back. But like they said, this is a different Hulk Hogan. And Hulkamanian already went running wild. Just check it out, man. This just, this just turns me on, brother. This just turns me on. And I'm going to the top of the ladder. And I thank each and every one of you for bringing the Hulkster back to your daddy. Hulkamanian's running wild. All right, the big man out of Venice Beach, California. The incredible Hulk Hogan. It was truly a pleasure whenever I stepped in the studio or in an arena and worked with Hogan either behind the scenes or in front of the camera. A few weeks later, on January 23rd, the single most important wrestling match in history took place. A match would forever change the course of the sport. On that night, Hulk Hogan surged into Madison Square Garden to face the Tyran Iran's Iron Sheik for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. One month earlier in the same building, Backlund was defeated for the title by the Sheik and was scheduled to take on the new champion in a rematch. Backlund, however, was still suffering from a neck injury he had suffered at the hands of the Sheik. When it became clear that the amateur wrestling standout from Princeton, Minnesota would be unable to compete, he appointed Hogan as his replacement. From the opening bell, Hogan attacked with a, an astonishing ferocity, pummeling the champion with a flurry of clotheslines, knee drops, and elbow smashes. Though he had been battered within an inch of his life, the Iron Sheik would soon mount an offense, eventually locking Hogan into his submission finisher, the Camel Clutch. Hogan would overcome the Camel Clutch and perform his now signature leg drop for the 1-2-3 pin. Hulkamania was born. McMahon's decision to bring Hogan in was having an immediate intense impact. So it wasn't long before Hogan found himself in Madison Square Garden to face the Iron Sheik for the championship. He's going up. Hulk Hogan, he dropped the big leg out. He's going for the cover of the leg one. Two. He's going up.
And on that date, January 23, 1984, Hulkamania was born. That's when my wife and I just had one good year in New York. We could retire. That'll be it. Well, one year turned into two, two turned into three, and three turned into ten. All I asked was for the whole WWF to stand behind the holster. And I told him I'd bring it home to the USA. You know something, me, Gene? It is the dream of a lifetime, Daddy. Oh. And you know something? I can't imagine this is like going to the mountaintop a thousand times over. I feel the energy. Hulkamania's running worldwide. And it just turns me on, me, Gene. And I felt every one of those 25, 30 plus thousand people with me standing behind me all the way. And it felt great. Well, you have arrived, Hulk Hogan. Have you ever seen anything as beautiful as this, me, Gene? This bell is part of yours, too. It's everybody out there. Oh, 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 Andre the Giant congratulating the new heavyweight champion of the world. That's nice of you. I'm really proud of you. I'm doing a good best for Oh, Welcome fans to the Beyond the Bell Control Center. Yes, the Control Center is back. And it is not TBS, and this is not Gordon Soley. Just your ring announcer, Sean Beckerman, bringing you the programming for the month of September on Beyond the Bell via the SNS Radio Network. September is Fall Brawl Month, featuring all things nostalgia in professional wrestling. This month's content features the oh-so-close edition, the greatest superstars that never won the big one in the world of sports entertainment. From Kurt Henning, Rick Root, and Jake Roberts to Rowdy Roddy Piper, BTB covers the all-time greats that are legends in this business but do not carry a world championship reign on their resume. This month features the highly anticipated Epic Encounters edition that covers just one feud, perhaps the rivalry that shaped professional wrestling forever. Heartbreaking Hatred, the Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels story. WWE will be releasing their version of this classic rivalry on DVD next month, but you can hear it first from a fan's perspective during that controversial era. We will follow the careers of Brett and Sean, featuring old-school audio from their tag team days to their championship victories. Hear the behind-the-scenes story of the Montreal Screwjob from both sides, the Hitman and the Heartbreak Kid. Volume 6 will truly be epic. Wrestling fans, get ready to look back at the most spectacular entrances in professional wrestling. From the arena lighting to entrance music, BTB breaks down what truly makes a memorable entrance. We also relive some of the greatest entrances in the history of sports entertainment, so get ready to strut down the aisle with the greatest entrances in professional wrestling. This month also features the debut of two new series for Beyond the Bell. The first will run wild on you as BTB debuts the Hulkamania Chronicles. We look back at the illustrious career of the pro wrestling icon and how he came to be the immortal one. This month features the early days of Terry Bollea and the beginning of Hulk Hogan. Listen to audio from the Hulk Still Rules DVD and the A&E biography of the Hulkster. So remember to say your prayers and eat your vitamins for the debut of the Hulkamania Chronicles. Also, 
pro wrestling students, class is in. It is time to enroll in WCW 101, the history of world championship wrestling. BTB will cover the illustrious history of WCW from the NWA to the dying days of the promotion. This month we will open up our textbooks to Chapter 1, The Beginning of the Alliance. So make sure you take good notes as we kick off the WCW 101 course on Beyond the Bell. So wrestling fans, buckle up for the full brawl month at Beyond the Bell on the SNS Radio Network. Get ready to rewind and relive the greatest and worst in the world of professional wrestling. For the Beyond the Bell Control Center, this is ring announcer Sean Beckerman signing off, and we'll see you at the matches. It's go time! Wrestling fans, that was part one of our Hulkamania Chronicle series, the early days. We saw Hulk Hogan defeat the Iron Sheik. Hulkamania is here, just as Gorilla Monsoon stated. And next month, we'll look ahead to the Hulkamania stage of the Hulk Hogan Chronicles as we look at the beginning of the Hulkamania era in the World Wrestling Federation. Thank you so much for joining us for this Hulkamania Chronicles edition of Beyond the Bell. We'll see you next week. So get ready to rewind and relive the greatest and worst in the world of professional wrestling and sports entertainment as we take you back for all things pro wrestling nostalgia with Beyond the Bell. Gotta take a stand, he don't have to hide Well, you hurt my friends and you hurt my pride I gotta be a man, I can't let it slide I am a real American Fight for the rights of your life I feel strong about right and wrong And I don't take trouble for very long Got something Is a thing that keeps us free. I am a real American. A fight for the rights of every man. I am a real American. A fight for what's right. Fight for your life
Hey fans, ring announcer Sean Beckerman here. Want to go back in time and relive the greatest and worst in the world of sports entertainment? From all-time favorite matches to the worst gimmicks in pro wrestling, we cover it all. So join us each and every week on the SNS Radio Network as we go beyond the bell. What? 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 What?